Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 140. I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. Sorry we didn't have an episode for you last week. It was, uh, it's been a hectic month, man. September. It's been brutal. It has been brutal. (sighs) I didn't know it was going to be so mean to us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, uh. We launched the Kickstarter September 1st, and uh, I also went out of town the past two weekends for family-related things, um, so that didn't line up that well. Yeah, so. basically, this was not the month that we should have done the Kickstarter. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, we're not going to blame everything on timing. A lot of it has been, obviously, uh, just we didn't execute very well. Uh, but September was like the worst month for us to pick, probably. Like we we knew that we wanted to target summer, but June wasn't going to happen. July just wasn't happening, and like that was the last month where it was like that's the optimal time to go for it. And then uh, September also just happened to have like you know he read a town a lot. Uh, what else? I had something going on too. I don't remember, but yeah, last week didn't really work out. It's been rough, man. Um, to be perfectly honest, the Kickstarter is not going well. Yay, depression cast already. Yeah, well, we're not going to focus too much on uh, <laughs> negativity and whatnot. Like, we're going to try to be positive and whatnot. But, uh, you know, this is also a podcast where we're very frank, you know, we're very honest and we say things like, we're not going to tweet that, like, hey, our Kickstarter is going pretty badly. It's almost certainly going to fail. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not going to, you know, put that out there on uh, on the Twitters and whatnot. But uh, the, the podcast is like the, the intimate the intimate discussion, you know, behind, <laughs> behind the scenes. Yes. Behind yes. the curtain, that kind of thing. Um, that said though, we do have some, uh, updates coming that we're hopefully, you know, put a little bit more life into it. So we'll see how that yes. goes. If yeah. nothing else, this is going to be, you know, one of an, you know, series of many learning experiences for us. <laughs> yes, we are. We are learning a lot and there has been a lot of support from, uh, Lost Cast listeners. So thank you very much for that. We do, we do really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. So this episode is going to be a little bit about the Kickstarter. Um, I finally wrote that a Wizard's Lizard one post mortem, which is like this. It's kind of like been what this podcast has been about for the last two years. <laughs> uh, finally wrote that. I've been meaning to do it since June 2013. Like what? I don't even know where the game was at back then. Maybe I was uh, planning ahead. Like I should write that someday. Postmortem. Yeah, you tend to like want to write a postmortem before <laughs> the game is even launched. Yeah, I do. That ticket, June 2013, was before the game even launched. Yeah, it wasn't on uh, Humble yet. I think that was that was January 2014, right? And then Steam was June yes. 2014. So like, I made the ticket uh, very early, as I tended to do, especially back then. But uh, either way, it had been a long time in the making long time so finally did that we'll kind of go over that a little bit and i'll put a link obviously to it in the show notes uh you just got back from san no colorado yes colorado colorado springs colorado Uh, it went really well i was visiting my brother who lives out there now he used to live here in san diego but uh he's since moved out there so that was a lot of fun out of san diego uh like right before you got there Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, not right before. Probably like a year or so. But yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Why did he move? Um, He just wanted to change a pace. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. uh, Colorado seemed like a good choice. He and a couple of his friends just kind of moved out there on a whim. They kind of felt like leaving San Diego. So they just went. Mm. They picked some random place. And it wow. happened to be Colorado Springs. Interesting. So like they didn't have jobs lined up or anything. They were just like, let's do it. No, well, two of them worked remotely for like a tech company, and then my brother found the job once he got up there. Nice. 
Interesting. Yep. And there was no rhyme or reason to Colorado. It just sounded good. Not that I'm aware of. Huh. <laughs> Fascinating. My uh, brother and his wife did that before they had kids. They just moved to Seattle. They, I think um, his wife had just finished like her master's or something, and he just quit his game job making environment art, and they were like, let's go to Seattle and um, get an apartment and hope we can find work. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, there's something that sounds uh, you know, kind of fun about that. Yeah, yeah, you kind of pack up your stuff. It's like a mini adventure, you know? Um, interesting thing about Colorado Springs, though, is that uh, it's, you know, pretty high up. It's about 6,000 feet, but it gets pretty hot in the summer, and it gets pretty cold in the winter. Like so high altitude? It's very. It's pretty high altitude. It's like 6,500 feet. Um, Sounds like a lot. And then we actually went up to the top of Pikes Peak Ooh. Uh, in Colorado, which is about 14,500 feet. Um, which let me tell you, um, <laughs> it's hard to breathe up there. <laughs> Doesn't sound good. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the way it goes. The oxygen um, is not as dense. You're like, you're closer to space, right? Yes. <laughs> well, the atmospheric pressure down at sea level pushes oxygen closer together. Yeah. And then when you're up high in the mountains, it's more spread apart. So I guess, you know, on any given breath, you're getting less oxygen than you're used to, especially if you're from a sea level town like san diego yeah uh andrea and i were really into everest for a while and uh it's really interesting to read about uh that about that because like that's the closest you can get to space without getting in a spaceship or you know right. <laughs> some type of plane or whatnot right and uh there's i think it's called the is it called the kill zone or the death zone but there's basically this line that like when you cross it the atmosphere basically does not provide enough oxygen anymore like you will die eventually without oxygen wow so it's like you don't want to be up there for very long <laughs> right so you have to time it very carefully yeah so uh, that's pretty interesting though i mean i don't i doubt that pike's peak is anywhere near the everest kill zone but. right yeah <laughs> it is the highest peak on the planet so yeah probably not but yeah probably not same kind of idea though right it's like harder harder to breathe uh, yeah it was and like you kind of get you feel a little loopy yeah <laughs> like lack of oxygen to the brain you're kind of woo hey i feel weird yeah this is funky it is funky but yeah. uh, the view from the top was amazing. Oh, I can imagine. So I love that. And uh, and I played a bunch of games with my brother because we love to play games. Nice. Um, so I, th- I actually played Castle Panic for the first time with him. Yeah. Which I found to be a pretty interesting game. It's a great like kind of co-op game. We played a lot of uh, Pandemic. Oh, I like that one too. Which is another co-op game. Yeah. Um, those are both pretty fun. Um, the thing I like about both those games is that they have some variations. You know, they're not super hard. Right. Um, and if you beat them on kind of the easy setting, then they have some variations for you to tweak so that the game gets a lot harder. Right. Uh, and we spent, uh, I think it took us about eight attempts, but we beat Pandemic on the hardest way possible. Oh, geez. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, Pandemic is really hard. Uh, so w- what we like about those games is uh, both games are co-op, which is really nice because, you know, the other option is something like Monopoly where you're very much against each other and after four hours you just want to strangle the other people right it's it's like it creates a really frustrating experience and uh those games are fun because you know like we can work together and if you you're working towards a common goal and so you get that feeling of like camaraderie and you know teamwork and whatnot yes it's kind of nice pandemic's really tough though we often have to kind of tweak the rules a little bit like we will pick the best uh i guess you call them character classes like the cards you get to choose we will hand pick those instead of like you're supposed to shuffle them and pick them randomly but like some characters we just can't make any progress without them so yep 
Yeah. It does kind of come down to which characters you get. I think we did random the whole time, but we, you know, we played uh, a handful of games and we got a good combination. Right. Um, so, uh, some of it's just kind of getting lucky too, you know? Yeah. How you, uh, there's kind of random card draws. And so, if you draw badly, then you get screwed really quickly. And if you don't, um, then you're fine. Right. Yeah. Those are both really cool. I, I've got both of those and we play them periodically. One thing I remember about Castle Panic is we were actually, uh, at one point in our history, probably several years ago, talking to a company that had licensed the IP for Castle Panic. Yes. And we were <laughs> sort of in talks to develop that game. I don't remember what happened to that contract now. I'm I guessing think it we fell didn't through. get it. <laughs> I, if memory serves, that company went under. Or at the very least, they changed both their name and then they kind of pivoted. Mm. into something else is that was really common back when we were talking to a lot more companies than we have been for the last year or so yeah but that might be a, a direction that we're headed <laughs> pretty soon here is talking to more companies and uh looking for contracts and whatnot yeah maybe possibly uh anyways it was a lot of fun to play those games so um if you get a chance to check either of them out uh, i highly recommend both of them yeah for sure um but yeah i'm actually really anxious to get back into you know, LDG stuff after kind of being um, MIA for the past two weekends. And yeah. uh, sorry about my game dev live stream. I was, had to miss both both last of Mondays. Yeah, we. Uh, I was actually thinking about um, doing that myself, but like, you know, yesterday just did not work out. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Just this month for scheduling has, has not been ideal. <laughs> eh, it's, you know, it's life. It happens. It is. Yeah, it does. It's unfortunate, but it happens. Sometimes, you know, when it rains, it pours in terms of scheduling. So, uh, we launched on Kickstarter two weeks ago at this point. And here are the, the hard numbers. Um, we are at 21, 21% of the goal. It's a little over $10,000. And uh, the goal is 50K. And the duration, the time duration is about half over. We have 15 days left. So, uh, technically possible, we could turn it around. Although... Uh, Man, it's it's an uphill battle. I don't know how to do it, you know. I've tried a lot of things. Um something I posted recently was like an incentive to get up to 200 backers. Oh, that and go? uh uh it didn't make a dent really. Like I think we've seen maybe 10, maybe possibly 20 pledges since then. That's the thing, man. I'm just uh I'm realizing more and more I'm not super good at the promotion stuff, you know. Did you just post the update or did you also update the actual page itself? Uh, I did not update the page itself. Mm. That's a good point. I've seen a lot of Kickstars, you know, where they have kind of like a, you know, the achievements matrix. Yeah. Um, I felt, I think, because our we only had the one that ours felt a little bit anemic. Yeah. So I, I didn't know where to put it also. Um, I don't know, man. It's just there, there's so much with the Kickstarter. It's funny. I actually felt pretty good about the research that we did um, maybe like three months prior you know, but like the more I learn, the more I realize that we were really far behind. And then also like these days, I think a Kickstarter project takes more like four or five months of learning and research. And then like three months of execution. It's just like as it gets more traction, as more people are on Kickstarter, it becomes harder and harder to learn all about it and to execute all of it really well. And just the bar for quality goes up and up and up. And, you know, just yeah. the general kind of game industry stuff of uh you know there's to- so many games and you know only a finite amount of attention span i think the thing with the updates specifically is that uh you know a lot of people landing on the kickstarter page and i know this is true for myself is that i rarely read updates uh for a project that i'm thinking about backing right 
Like I'll read the first page and then at that point I've made my decision. Yeah. And I don't really need to read the updates unless you, you know, the only time I, I can see myself doing that is if I was already interested looking to back and I just wanted more information because I was, you know, so interested in whatever it was that they were making. Right. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. That's tough. Marketing is uh, very difficult. Uphill battle. Yeah, so we'll have another, uh, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit more on the next episode, and, uh, you know, maybe things could turn around. We do have some ideas. We want to do some more updates. We want to talk more about the death mechanic and uh, and the combat and that kind of a thing. So uh, we'll see if we'll be able to turn it around. But uh, right now we are trending towards somewhere around probably less than half of hitting the goal, which uh, that's rough to, uh, to see those trends. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, we could... Uh see where we are and we could relaunch the campaign or we could you know kind of go back and change some stuff up and you know again relaunch it with a different amount or you know yeah. different updates or something yeah uh if you have any advice you have any thoughts about it if uh you know you saw the campaign and it you know didn't float your boat or you backed it and and you know you're wondering why it's not doing better any of that kind of thing any thoughts you have at all is really helpful for us because you know we've got tunnel vision and we're overwhelmed with information and stuff and it's it's hard sometimes to know uh what to do next you know so, um, I finally wrote that AWL1 postmortem, uh, partially to kind of try to get the word out there about the sequel, although I wasn't trying to make it too heavy-handed. Like, here's a postmortem about AWL1. Back our Kickstarter! <laughs> <laughs> like, that's another thing I'm noticing, is that, like, um, I'm just, I'm not a very good relentless self-promoter, because I, I don't like shoving things down people's face. I don't like being the annoying person that you wish would stop talking about their stupid project, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like some people have that skill set like they're a good salesman you know like cold calling or knocking on people's doors and they just they they have thick thicker skin than me or something i guess i just i'm not a good like constant relentless self-promoter mm. i don't know what i don't know what it is man yeah, it's hard you know it's not that uh, type of personality is not everybody right yeah i'm just more of an introvert i just i, I guess i'm happier locking myself in a cave and, and trying to do good work and rather than like you know trying to talk people and get them excited about things that i even have a hard time um shouting about you know right so the uh the post-mortem i'm gonna quickly go through these uh bullet points but uh do check it out i'll put a link to it in the show notes and uh i think it's a good read i think it's some good takeaways and uh, i think it's very relevant to our lost cast listenership here you know it's all about game development and figuring out what went wrong what went right that kind of thing um so i'll quickly go over the bullet points and uh i did it Game Developer Magazine style, which is the style that I like, which is where uh, you talk about five things that went right, five things that went wrong, and then you kind of sum it up at the end. And uh, I think that works really well. So here is what went right. The first one is a Wizard's Raga, where I talk about Raga, basically, and the fact that the, a Wizard's Lizard, the name, really helped. Um, basically, that is like one of the key things that got people's attention, because if, uh, if we had stuck, stuck with Crypt Run, which was what our Kickstarter was a couple of years ago, and we had Zam as the main character, who's like an intentionally generic knight dude, like probably nobody would have paid attention to it at all. Probably. So we did we did good there. Um, another one is kind of luck, which I think that with almost any successful project ever, you're going to have a large luck factor. And uh, if you don't think it's there, you're probably kidding yourself. <laughs> and we got pretty lucky in some regards. So uh, number two is timing and market placement. And this is basically talking about, for one... Um, it got a, a lot of attention because people thought it was similar to the Binding of Isaac. And then also the timing is really important there because if we tried to launch this game after Rebirth came out, nobody would have cared because Rebirth was like a, 
you know, even bigger somehow than the original. So we launched and got a little bit of attention during this period where like Binding of Isaac was a huge, huge hit, but um, you know, like it's, it's remake hadn't come out yet. Yeah. It was like this kind of lull where the popularity of the first version was kind of waning and people were excited for the next thing. And so they wanted something similar. Yeah. And there's a, a handful of games kind of in that time frame, like uh, our darker purpose. Um, and you're actually starting to see a lot more of the kind of Zelda overhead, roguelike games coming out these days yeah yeah i wonder if uh if we'll be able to compete who knows we have boxing match uh number three unique death mechanic that one really helped us out back when it was crypt run it was death is just the beginning which that sounds pretty cool always like that tagline you know and uh while it's not necessarily completely true <laughs> that is not just the beginning it's uh it is certainly not the end and that's cool right like when you die most games like that's it you're done, and in a wizard lizard, you are now a ghost character, and you fight ghosts and ghostly ghostness. It's all good. Ghostly ghostness. It's yes. a pretty cool element of the game. There's like some areas you can't get to, and monsters you can't fight unless you're dead, and that's that's cool. Uh, if nothing else, it's at least different, and it's you know something that's easy to talk about and yeah, kind of easy to understand. I think for players and uh, easy to make videos about and that kind of stuff. Um, and it's really one of the only things that the game had that we could really, you know, say was unique, you know, to that specific kind of mashup of genre. Yeah. It was basically our strange attractor, which I think that with the sequel, um, when we've been talking about designing that and whatnot, we would kind of double down on the lizard, but, uh, recent conversations, we've talked more about bringing in that, that death mechanic because like, you know, lizard is cool and we like the lizard and we want to make that feel unique and everything, but it is not necessarily that strange attractor we've been looking for. I think that, um, the way I, I've been thinking about it is that it's not bad to have a strange attractor thematically and a strange attractor mechanically. Right. And so the lizard is kind of like this superficial thematic strange attractor, um, where, you know, we, we've actually talked about on the podcast several times about trying to make the main character feel more lizardy. Yeah. With, you know, like, tongue mechanics and stuff. But I still think that's kind of, you know, surface level. Um, right. Especially because a lot of the stuff you can do with the lizard tongue, you could do with other items like, you know, the grappling hook or the boomerang type interaction, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's really, the tongue isn't necessarily a new and different strange mechanic. It's mostly just our skin of existing mechanics uh, of this kind of a genre. Yeah. And it won't necessarily excite people, you know, like you might get some Yoshi fans who are like, sweet. He looks like Yoshi. He's got a tongue mechanic like Yoshi, but it's not going to be that, that strange attractor, you know, kind of like, um, you, you want it to excite people basically and make them really interested. Like, Oh wow. I've never seen something like that before. Like the whole, that whole element is kind of gone because people have seen something like that before, just not in this genre necessarily, right? Right, yeah. It's tough. It is tough. Um, yeah, I think that's the takeaway we got from there is that a strange attractor is not even really enough. Um, I was getting caught up on like, maybe we could double down on the bees, which which I, I really like bees. I think they're cool and everything, but you made the point where it's like, it's really, that's kind of a skin it's like a skin change. It's surface level. You know, it's like you could replace the bees with magic bursts or fireballs and it mechanically acts exactly the same. And that's, what's cool about the death mechanic is it is a mechanical strange attractor, you know, like it doesn't just exist and it's not just cool to talk about. It also has deep meaning in the game. Like it really matters if you're alive or dead. Right. And you know, something moving forward we would like to do is 
you know, expand upon that so that it matters more. Yeah. Uh, than it did in the first game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number four is promotion. It actually went pretty well. And again, this is kind of chalked up to, uh, to luck. Um, Greg love of whippering did a lot for us here too. We got some prominent streamers. We lucked out with Northern lion doing some videos. Um, green light was successful for us. It only took about a month. Um, that's actually something I want to talk about too, with regards to the AWL two, uh, Kickstarter, but I'll talk about that after the postmortem talk. Um, so promotion went pretty well and like i there's nothing necessarily very repeatable about this except for one thing is um you got to have a, a playable game basically because like any of the ideas that i've had for gaining some serious traction with the kickstarter has kind of fallen over because we don't have a playable version you know like putting it in the hands of someone like herdy k or northern lion like that could have a big impact in our ability to fund the game but like since we don't have that playable demo like basically our hands are tied in that regard Right, and so when we did our first Kickstarter, which really isn't a gauge of any kind of measurement because it only raised, well, it raised less than we have now on our current Kickstarter, um, <laughs> but we kind of kicked off our Kickstarter at California Extreme with a playable demo. Yeah. And I don't think California Extreme itself moved the needle, but you know maybe um, it was nice to have that, that playable thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, like none of those people were streaming our game at that point. Right. All of those streaming things came later in the game's life cycle around the actual launch. It had already launched on Humble, basically. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, those were the, the Twitch streamers, and then Northern Lion started after the uh, the Steam launch. Right. So the, the timing is difficult because like that is a six-month gap there. So we launched on Humble. We got a little bit of plays, just enough to like green light it and stuff like that. And then we had six months to, I think we finished up a contract and then we also doubled down. We've talked about this, like the, the soul orbs, soul abilities, the totems, we added some more content. We basically just like started sprinting in preparation for the big launch on steam. And, uh, that kind of paid off. Yeah, it did. I guess what I was saying is that it's not necessarily, you know, we don't, we didn't know that having a streamable game, uh, of prototype quality would actually attract people to stream the game at this stage. Right. Yeah, that's what uh, I was reading a while ago, something about Kickstarter. It was like, it's kind of like a pre-sale platform these days. You know, like you almost have to have, if not a playable game that's ready for installation and bug-free and fun times on random people's computers, then at the very least, you must have enough of a game to create like animated GIFs and stuff like that. Right. So it is not really a way to traditionally fund something. You can't just have some storyboards and a concept. You know, it's not really a pitch. It's more of a you're trying to sell the work that you've already done. So it requires a lot, a lot of work up front. Something that I like to keep in mind with the Kickstarter stuff. Yeah, I think this conversation is probably going to bounce back and forth between <laughs> the Kickstarter and both versions of the game. But yeah, uh, something I like to keep in mind is that we didn't raise a whole lot of money with uh awl1 on kickstarter um but yet we actually made a decent chunk of cash with it on steam and so you know uh disinterest on kickstarter isn't necessarily a sign that your game won't sell somewhat on steam yeah yeah that's a very good point we had actually flip-flopped about this a little bit like one of the reasons we wanted such a high uh, goal like the 50k which is an order of magnitude above what we asked for the first time is because we were thinking like it's kind of a test for the market 
right? Like if there is no market for this on Kickstarter, then maybe we're wrong. Maybe there is no market for it on Steam, but it's really not true. The The audiences are completely different because I mean, if we're being honest here, the vast majority of people who own a Wizard Lizard on Steam, they got it either through a Steam sale or much more likely they got it on Humble Bundle, which, you know, at the end they ended up paying, you know, pennies on the dollar right. for it. So these are savvy gamers. These are patient gamers. These are people who like roguelikes, and they might not have any interest whatsoever in putting money down now to maybe get a game next year. That's a completely different type of person. So it's it's really not a good test for the market, right? It's interesting to think about um, the number of players on Steam and about two out of three Steam owners on uh, of a Wizards Lizard 1 uh, got the game through Humble Bundle. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, like you can look at our Steam Spy numbers, and they look pretty healthy. It's like, wow, this game did pretty good, you guys. And then you realize that the majority, like most, came from Humble. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's It's less of a success than it looks like sometimes. Yeah, I think there was actually a comment on your post-mortem article that basically said that, like, hey, you know, you have 60K owners on Steam. Like, how the hell does this not equal money? Yeah, yeah, I saw that just today. And uh, numbers are misleading. Yes. I was going to say, yeah, you, you just can't trust, you know, you can't just take the number of owners in Steam and multiply it by the default price and equals yeah. revenue. I think it's a lot of it, too, is, you know, you look at the numbers and you might think, like, you guys are doing fine. What's the deal? Why can't you just fund this game, right? But it's like, think about the two years we spent on the first game and, like, even though we've done a couple of months now of work on the sequel, we would like to work on it for another year or two. You know, we want to make a really, really good game. And, uh, you know, that's what the funding is for, right? It's like, okay, because we're not bankrupt now, like at this moment, that, that doesn't mean that we have the capability of finishing a big game. You know, like that's a very different thing. Right. So number five was the solid core gameplay. And basically the point here is that, you know, the game is pretty fun. It's, it's a pretty... Uh, solid game. It's a twin-stick shooter. You know, the explosions are satisfying. Killing monsters feels good. Picking up money and buying things. Like, most tasks that you do in the game are executed pretty well. It's pretty well polished, and it's probably not until you've played the game for several hours before you start to feel uh, you know, that some areas are weaker than others. <laughs> the brutal pain. Right. <laughs> Which was my segue into what went wrong. Which, this one, uh, the top five reasons of, of what went wrong. Number one, this is going to surprise no one, the technology. And uh, sorry to keep, you know, beating a dead horse. Um, we still love HTML5. We still work with HTML5 and everything. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the game got a lot of negative reviews that were just around, like, the crashiness of it. You know, it being built on this kind of crazy, uh, you know, built on Node WebKit or NWJS these days. And uh, it just runs especially really slowly on a lot of uh, Steam users' computers. You know, when it hit that larger audience, it ended up um, hitting a lot of, like, people have got computers that are like five, six, ten years old, you know, and they're like, hey, you know, I, I played the most recent Fallouts, I play World of Warcraft on it, which those are both much more technologically advanced games, and that becomes frustrating for them because they're like, why isn't this 2D game that could have been made 20 years ago, like, why doesn't this work on my computer? It should be fine. Right. That's a pretty legitimate complaint. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of it just comes, comes down to, you know, that tool chain, uh, is not great getting better, but you know, yeah. especially 
what a year plus ago when we actually released the game on steam it wasn't even as good as it is now right yeah like it's getting better all the time and you know this time three or five years from now it might be great and there's no downsides to it whatsoever but uh you know that's basically that's the overarching reason of why we're moving towards unity yes uh number two hurt me plenty which that's a doom reference hope people get that uh basically the game is just too damn hard it's just too hard (laughs) You and I both, uh, we, we, we play it and like, you know, like, can you guarantee you can sit down right now and, and beat it in one playthrough? Um, I can't. With some of the latest changes, yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, so we've been kind of slowly and subtly nerfing the game. Yeah. Um, or at least like kind of the core experience. Right. I think it's still rather difficult to kind of do some of the extra stuff, like unlock the certain characters and things like that, things that require you to juggle more than one ball but um we have been um you know upping the drop rate of some health and buffing certain uh items and stuff like that right um this last patch actually the bees the bees got a huge buff bees Uh, bees. but yeah in general it is a little too difficult and not that the overall game should be easier but the you know first time experience should be easier the ramp up, yeah. Like the cemetery, we've talked about this. The cemetery is just way too hard. There's explosive barrels that kill you practically in one hit. There's the owls, which are just, like, that's advanced behavior. You know, like, that's the kind of thing that a, an experienced player who knows the game systems might be able to take on. But not someone who's like, what do we do here? I'll, I'll guess I'll attack this owl. And then, like, a horde of, oh, just, <laughs> you know, owl owl pain spread down on them. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's mostly, like, um, the ramp up. Like, if we had done a better job of tutorializing and ramping up the difficulty, it probably would have been fine. But uh, I think the intense difficulty really ended up hurting the game overall. Yeah. Made it inaccessible. It made it feel more grindy than it needed to be. That's a great segue into number three, the macro game design. Feels too grindy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, we talked earlier about how the uh, the core gameplay is pretty solid, but after you've played especially a couple dozen hours, you start to realize that there's things that feel grindy, like rescuing the town folk to increase your starting gold, finding the blueprints to increase the amount of items that you start with, uh, killing the crystal bosses to unlock uh, the later levels, shortcuts to those, and uh yeah it kind of creates this grindy scenario that doesn't really turn everybody on it does turn on a lot of players you know there's a lot of people who've put like 60 up to 500 is the most amount of hours that i've seen somebody on steam has put into it so it definitely appeals to some people but i think the overall like the larger um, feedback was that it was it was a bit too grindy and that's the thing it's you know looking back on that our goal now is to make a game that has a little bit more accessibility you know it has something for people that don't want to grind, but it also has something for people that are interested in kind of playing the game until, you know, their thumbs fall off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good tagline. Yes. You'll want to play it until your thumbs run off. <laughs> uh, number four, we've talked about this before. I really like this one. Um, this is the Super Castlevania Four problem. And there is the sequelitis video about this, which uh, to me is mandatory game designer watching. So if you haven't seen the Castlevania 4 sequelitis, please hit pause and go check it out <laughs> and come <laughs> back to us. Uh, but basically what this is all about is uh, Castlevania games, especially for Nintendo, are classic, very tightly designed games. They're just exquisite. And then when you get to uh, Super Nintendo, they made Simon much bigger and they made his whip this ridiculous, like diverse, 
weapon. It, it's like it stretches most of the way across the screen. You can whip up, down. You can you can just stick your whip out and flop it around like a wet noodle that kills things and blocks projectiles. It's awesome. And the problem is you still have all these sub weapons and hearts. And when you're playing the game, you don't use them because you don't care. You're like holy water. Pfft whip 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 you're done you know whippity whip 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 whipperson yeah it's that's all that you need so uh we kind of have that problem because basically you start off with swords which are infinite and they're projectile based and then it only goes uphill from there you get bees and you get you know boom spears and tridents and golden axes and uh it's all good and then we've also like well, we've got these soul abilities you can drop a totem <laughs> and you're like why would i drop a totem when i can unleash hellfire at any moment all right so it's that's a pretty severe problem that uh, we never really figured out, and we have lots of great ideas for the sequel though, for yes. how to solve that. But pretty big problem. Um, last but not least, number five, repetition. It's a bit too repetitious. Um, I think that a lot of people who found our game, like we mentioned earlier, that came from Binding of Isaac, and uh, apparently players of, the, of of that game, uh, you experience very different like gameplay types. Because on any given run, you might do something like, um, I think, what is it called? Like a deal with the devil or whatnot, where it changes your character entirely. And like your whole method of attack will be different. And so from game session to game session, the game will feel very different. Whereas in a Wizard's Lizard, it doesn't happen so much. And uh, the dungeons can start to feel a little bit samey. And uh, like the whole point from the game, you know, Wizard's Lizard, you've got that repetition in the name, you've got that repetition in the gameplay and the procedural generation. And it's like, it's a game that's meant to be played a lot over and over again. And uh, for a lot of people, like we mentioned earlier, they really do love it and they play it a lot. But we just think that it needed to be stronger uh, with regards to like, you know, you can play it all day and it always feels fresh and interesting. Right. Yeah. There's always room to uh, improve upon that, that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to end on a sour note because overall this has been a, a solid first major first party offering for us. You know, it's like, it's, it's done reasonably well on steam. Like we've, uh, you know, we study indie games pretty closely. We look at steam spy and steam charts and we are, we talk to other indie developers and, uh, as far as that goes it is sold kind of like above average, you know, at, at least, uh, with regards to, to indie games and been reasonably well received it's got some decent branding mind share i was actually at a uh, game dev drink up a couple weeks ago i think i meant i mentioned this somebody from riot who makes league of legends uh had heard of it and someone out of the st louis office really enjoyed it It was like a fan that talks about it that's really cool you know like it, it's not completely unusual that i'll <clears throat> bring it up in conversation with somebody and they've heard of it you know like it, it got okay mileage uh, even though it didn't, you know, make us a million dollars and we can't just work on whatever game we want next and that kind of thing. Um, it is a solid uh, first kind of attempt. Yeah, actually, I met um, a couple of my brother's acquaintances in Colorado who had heard of and enjoyed the game. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's crazy. Like, That's really awesome. It, it's, I don't know. It's so weird when you, when you realize that people actually know. Yeah. <laughs> And if you think about it, you know, this game is not something that we just thought of and banged out and we're done with. You know, it's like we were juggling so much at the time. We were still doing contracts pretty much all throughout development. We 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 pivoted, you know, like it used to be Crypt Run, that was a Wizard Lizard, and we had all these feature ideas and like it was this giant thing that we that we worked on for years. And the fact that the end product ended up being pretty decent uh, says a lot. You know, it, it shows some real strength with regards to game design and development 
and just the ability to finish something, you know, like that feels really good. It's definitely our most complete finished game. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of positivity there, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to be very, uh, <laughs> very positive about it. <laughs> trying to channel all that. I think yeah. that, um, you know, we made a lot of missteps along the way um, of the first version. And obviously we made some missteps already with the second one. <laughs> already? With, with the Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. Yeah. But you know what? Like, uh, we do have the ability to wrap it all up at some point, And I think that I trust us <laughs> to end up with something pretty good. That's good. That's excellent. Yeah. Trust we, is important. You and I, and like, it's kind of like that graphic that we reference all the time about the path to success. Yes. <laughs> and it's, you know, very rarely just this fork. It's kind of this switchback of failures. Yeah. And I think something else that's important too is there is no like necessarily failure, 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 success. It's like failure, failure, success, failure, 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 success, failure, success, success, right? Right. It's like, it's like stepping stones. And we talked uh, just, I think, last week about how we try to like, let's say you're climbing up stairs, right? And we want to jump up like basically longer than our legs are. We want to jump up 10 steps, but it's like, you know, our legs might be able to handle two, maybe three, you know, and we're juggling at the same time. Like I'm really making this analogy weird. <laughs> if you can picture us juggling and trying to like run up a flight of stairs and we end up tripping and falling and dropping balls basically. And what we need to be doing instead is taking one step at a time. And I think a big part of that is just, we're very ambitious we're very impatient, you know, like lost decade, the name itself comes from a place of where like we're already cognizant of the fact that we've wasted time and we're trying to make up for lost time, you know, and uh, sometimes we just need to be more patient. Yes, that's true. Let things, let things happen slowly and, you know, Iteratively. iterate. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Overall though, uh, postmortem, check it out. It's uh, it's a good read. And um, let us know your thoughts about that. And uh, check out the Kickstarter for AWL 2, of course. Um, and speaking of AWL 1, we actually just released a uh, an update. The 2.5 yes. update for the game. Um, which this is my favorite update ever, I think. Really? Ever? I think so. Well, unless you count like the one, which might not even have been like one complete update, but the one with all the new abilities like the solo orb and the totems and the content and whatnot. Like, totems are a lot of fun, but, like, definitely since the Steam launch, this is my favorite update, because you did this thing where the dungeons are now interconnected. Mm-hmm. So, like, you... Because previously, you would go off on a branch. Like, you know, your starting room has up, down, left, right, usually, and you go to the left, and it's like, it just kind of goes off on this wing, and it has nothing to do with the rest of the dungeon. And you go north, and the same deal, you know? But now you can go north and end up on the west and you can go south and end up in the east or whatever. Like the dungeon levels themselves are intermixed and it feels so much better. Yeah. And you do less backtracking and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. That was really one of the big good. things was that, uh, the dungeon layout. And I also, um, I radically improved the algorithm for laying out special rooms. Nice. Um, in a couple ways. One was that I used my favorite thing ever heuristics. Yes. Uh, to make it so that special rooms don't prefer to be next to each other. Mm. And so you kind of get them scattered more evenly across any given dungeon floor. Nice. Uh, you know, just because of the way that the dungeons can be generated, sometimes it will still happen. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing about heuristics, right? It's all about preference. Yeah. And so if the engine can prefer to put them, you know, on opposite sides of the dungeon from each other, then it will. Nice. Um, so that's nice. And then the other thing was that the uh, kind of questing special rooms can now appear in any 
floor of a given zone. So, like, for example, um, if you've played the game, you know that uh, on the first level, there was always that grave room, and you could always go in there, and you could spawn the white zombie after dying, and then get his lance, and then move on. Um, those kinds of rooms are actually now randomized across all cemetery floors. So you may not see that particular room on the first floor or the second floor, and it would be on the third floor. Uh, it could still be on the second or the first in a different game. So there's like a pool of those, like the you know the lance room, the green chest room, uh, the hostage room. So all those kinds of special rooms uh, don't necessarily appear on any particular floor of any particular zone now. Excellent. There's been a lot of those changes where like just the the whole game feels better. Um, something else I did was that I put a pinnacle on every floor now instead of just randomly, or not randomly, but on the second floor, I guess, of each particular zone. Oh, nice. Which is kind of like a, it's like a subtle nerf to the game. Yeah. I think that that's good because it, it kind of improves accessibility, right? It means that, you know, uh, it's a lot more forgiving for people that die a lot. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's still an achievement that says, you know, beat the game without using any of these pentacles. You know, and that's mm. still just as hard as it ever was. Yeah, and that's the kind of thinking that we wanted to take into uh, AWL2, where it's like, the game itself, you might be able to beat it, even just a casual player, you know, after a couple of sessions and you learn a little bit about the game, and it's like, not terribly hard, right? But there's still a ton of stuff for you to do that is very challenging, right? Right. But it's like, just for advanced players or people who want to take on that challenge, instead of like, you can't even beat it unless you're a master who's spent like 20 hours figuring everything out. So. I think, yeah, that's the right approach is to, you know, get people invested to where they feel like, you know, not that they're the master of the game, but that they can do well right. and then kind of slowly feed them the really hard stuff. Like, yeah. oh, you mastered this easy thing. Now, how about this? Now, try it this way. Now, don't use any of these things or use only this thing. And uh, there's pretty much, you know, an infinite number of things that we could come up with uh, for Wizards Lizard even about ways to beat the game that are really difficult. Yeah. Beat the game without using anything but totems. <laughs> you know? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the things I'm really excited about for AWL 2. You know, like someone who doesn't necessarily play action games being able to beat it and see all the content and see the ending and feel good about themselves and like, yeah, I did that, you know? And it's not that hard of a thing to also offer a lot of cool stuff for advanced players to do. And, like, there might be times when I might fit into either category, you know? Like, sometimes I just want to play the game and just kind of not have to try that hard, and I could just, like, beat it, you know? Maybe progress in some way or another. And other times I might be like, all right, I'm feeling up to a challenge today. Like, I want to go for that achievement that's ridiculous and terribly hard, but, like, I want to, I want to go for it, you know? Yeah, it's nice to kind of offer both. Uh, both modes of play. Yeah, and I think that when you come at a game design with that mindset where you want to please everyone, it can be really overwhelming and you end up, you know, you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one, right? So it's a really overwhelming thing to try to accomplish on its own, but I think that we've found like this good marriage between the two. Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously that's, you know, great. It's a great quote, right? If you try and please everyone, you'll please no one. Yeah. And I think that in this particular situation, you know, it, it's more about the like details of a particular genre, right? So, like this game itself will appear uh, appeal to a certain type of person, right? Um, and you know, we're not trying to get everybody that's into you know match three games to play this twin stick shooter, right? 
uh we're not trying to like trend it that easy but it's more about like just like you're talking about earlier it's about the ramp up you know it's about taking people that are interested in in twin stick shooters and not just hitting them in the face with a brick over and over again in the first (laughs) level of the game yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like that yeah Welcome to our game, Schmack. Uh, that's fun, you guys. Yeah, I'm <laughs> done with you. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I did some work on the shops, too. Um, so the shops are now a lot more interesting. They have uh, randomization for uh, selling either items or health or the gambling shops. And so previously, the gambling shop only existed, I think, in one level in the sewer. But now it has a chance to show up all kinds of places, nice. which is fun because that is one of my favorite shops. The gambling shop? The gambling shop. Man, when we first launched that shop, it was like you. I, I never even. I skipped it. I was like, I don't. This is a waste of time, because it was so brutal. You know, you'd be like, you'd buy a key for five thousand, and you get like one gold or a bomb or something. You're like, great. But now, <laughs> like the new gamble shops, whenever I see it, I every single time, if I can, I buy every damn key. Yeah. Like it, it, almost always, you get something at least on par with what you already have, like another key or you know the amount that you paid. But a lot of times you'll get like this happens pretty regularly. I buy a key for five grand and end up getting twenty five grand, and I'm like, yes, I'm so rich, I can go buy those bees or something now. You know? Yeah. It. Uh, I think it's something we've learned is that rewards should be rewarding. You know? I yeah. think that. Imagine that. Yeah, well, you know, I think that there was a time where you and I kind of were very hesitant. You know, it kind of goes along with the difficulty, right? Like, yeah, it does. We had this perception that like we needed to just meter out the power increases in these like very small, you know, steps. Yeah, uh, and that's just not that fun. Yeah, I remember we watched uh, Cobalt Streak play a Wizard's Lizard, and this is not a fair comparison because this was the humble version before we had lots of new features and stuff. But uh, he beat it, I think, in like two hours. And he was just done with the game. And that made us really paranoid. We were like, okay, we need to be withholding. <laughs> we need to crank up the difficulty a lot. And like, that's not... Like, you shouldn't just watch one person play your game. Especially someone who's like a professional gamer. <laughs> like, I basically play Binding of Isaac full-time. Like, of course, I'm going to be good at a game that plays a lot like it. You know, like, that's that's not a good measuring stick with which to design your game around, you know? No. <laughs> uh, uh, we're learning. Yes. Something else that I did was uh, I took that Feather of Flying, which only existed in uh, part of Luna's Unlock quest in a very specific manner. It's like you had to open one chest in the cemetery, open a chest in the crypt, and then open a chest in the... Or sorry, open a chest in the, the sewer, open a chest in the crypt, and yeah. you get the Feather, which you could use to get to Luna's room. Uh, and again, like I don't even know why we made decisions like that, where we have this interesting item that's really powerful and we just put it in this one specific scenario uh, that you really don't want to do more than once. (laughs) And so, you know, I looked back on that and I said, this is ridiculous because this is a fun item and why isn't it everywhere, you know, or why doesn't it have a chance to show up everywhere? Yeah. Uh, So I ripped it out of that quest and I just put it in shops and chests and everything else. I think I remember is because it was um, kind of not buggy, but it created some design problems where it was like it was super overpowered you know you could avoid spikes completely but then also um there was kind of these bugs we had to patch one by one where it was like the first one we found is that like when you've got the feather you cannot uh touch the pentacles because the pentacles are on the ground and so like when you have the feather you can't revive i mean that ended up being a pretty easy fix but there was just things like that i think we were basically just nervous about it because it was a really powerful item 
Yeah, but I mean, it's fun, right? Like, I, it's fun. Yeah, it is. We really shouldn't fun. withhold it from players, especially since you know it's a randomized game, and like that, finding the feather in any given run would make it feel different. You know, it's like, oh wow, I got the feather. This is great. Now I don't have to worry about spikes for this particular run. Yeah, and it helps the intense difficulty because it makes things easier on you. You can hover over lava and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, that's a good change. Um, the other thing that uh, is kind of like an obvious one was uh, that merchant in Amberfall, the starting town that sold the uh, Skyrockets. We, yep. we did this update for July 4th, which was like a month after the original launch. And I guess it's been in there since then. So over a year, this guy has just only sold the Skyrockets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which are really not that... I mean, they're a fun weapon, but I mean, you're not going to want to use them like all the time, probably. It doesn't jive with the game's goal of being fun on repeated plays. Right. Right. Um, so I swapped that up and I just gave him a, a table of stuff where now he'll sell you uh, any number of things. Um, I think it's based on some timer, actually. So you can't just repeatedly you know, scum the game to get the item that you want. Um, he has like a timer where he'll sell you, you know, this is the item he chose for now. And then after some amount of time, he'll switch it up to a different item. Interesting. So is it like multiple times per day or something? Yeah, I have. I forget. I think it's something on the order of like an hour or something. Huh. Cool. Uh, it's just enough just to dissuade people from like, you know, start, restart, start, restart, start, restart. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're playing the game in a normal manner, pretty much every time you come back to play the game, you should be selling something different. Nice. Um, so the only time that you would ever notice that he's selling the same thing for a specific period of time is if you were, you know, trying to game it like, oh, well, let's see what happens if I just restart. Right. Oh, he has the same item. Okay. I've uh, been playing some Borderlands 2 recently, and that game has a similar feature where these stores will have like an item of the day. And um, it's not really item of the day. It's more like it'll last some amount of time, you know, and it's like, you know, get this item while it's hot. You got two hours left and timer slowly counts down, uh, which is cool. But in that game, it's a pretty broken feature because there's almost never any items in the shops that you're actually going to want because the way the rewards are divvied out in that game, they almost always come from big chests you get after completing what are essentially dungeons. Hmm. So it's like the shop will have like, you know, if you need a gun, there's a piece of crap gun here. Item of the day is a shield that's worse than what you've got. So you could buy that, <laughs> you know, and then you go complete a dungeon and you're like, there's my sniper rifle upgrade. That's what I wanted, you know? Yeah. And we have a very similar problem, to be honest, you know, especially with the br- blueprints and stuff. Yeah. You know, people will be like, well, why would I buy this? random item when i have this blueprint for this item that i love that's amazing right yeah, yeah so. blueprints are not making the cut no for the sequel <laughs> no 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 at least no not, townsfolk not no in the way that they uh they currently exist no yeah we're uh we're very paranoid about like polluting the uh the starting point in the game now i think yeah that was actually one of the things that that ended up being the worst you know it almost made the game feel more grindy than it is because <laughs> we kind of set you up with this expectation that like oh you're supposed to just like grind these blueprints until you can start with all the best equipment and then you beat the game right like we almost funneled people down that thinking uh as opposed to you know you know you should be able to beat this game if you're really good at it just from the get-go with nothing you know yeah. you'll find everything you need along the way which is you know pretty true yeah um but we kind of set up this expectation that, like, oh, you're supposed to, like, find these blueprints to get more things in town with yeah. which to buff up with. Right. 
so our bad. My uh, my least favorite scenario is where you have your like favorite starting item. You know, like you're like I love the trident, and so you buy the trident and start with the trident. And then during the game, we reward you with other stuff. Like here's some other weapons that you don't want because you have your favorite. Right. And you're like, ah, give me almost anything else. This is not rewarding. Uh, at least we recognize that after like that first, you know, batch of the blueprints. I think uh, we understood, and I don't think we've made any any new items we've added to the game have not been blueprints because we understood that that's just not that great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what else did we do? Uh, we updated the AI for the hive totem bees and the dragon familiar. Nice. So those things are actually really wicked good now. Hmm. Uh, and I also buffed the familiar dragon's damage output. So he's, he's a wrecking machine now. He's fun. We should do a new, cause it's just like a graphic and some behavior. We should do a new dragon familiar type. Yeah. yeah like summon dragons, summon Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> hey we can actually do that you actually exist in the game uh, do i <laughs> yeah there's a there's a character animation well yeah but i mean like it doesn't actually exist in the game itself no, no it's no. like the graphics are in the game files but yeah we could do that there's... we should do an update where it's like a new unlockable character why not play play as jeff yeah <laughs> why not get him yeah. killed because you know you hate him or whatever it would be interesting to see a wizard's lizard on the cutting room floor, which is this website uh, that I, I think is really cool. It basically goes through like, especially uh, classic games and it finds out like, uh, it just pokes around the data, you know, like it'll find a ROM and be like, Whoa, we found this like Tetris music that was never used or these um, sprites of Mario and Mario one or three. That was like, these were never used. These were never before seen. Uh, I saw something recently, Zelda 64, Ocarina of Time. That one had a bunch of animations of Link doing various weird things that were never used. Hmm. And uh, it's really cool to see that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff, like a lot of graphics and code and uh, features and stuff in AWL that, you know, were never used. Well, I think that, I'm not sure it's still in there, but for a long time we had this spider this That's huge still there. Yep. spider boss. <laughs> there's the spider uh, that was actually in Project Warhead. Uh, there's the nine or 10 different, uh, limbs that would be used in skeletal animations. And there's actually animation data. That's just like the, the monster itself is ready to be in the game and animated and move around, but it doesn't exist. Would that be eight limbs instead of nine or 10, Matt? No, well, there's eight limbs, but then there's the head and the body. Oh, There might be like a mouth. I don't know how many pieces there are, but yes, there are eight (laughs) limbs on arachnids. (laughs) Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but that's crazy. There's like, you know, there's a bunch of different sprites it has to draw. I think it's one of the reasons we shied away from it is because, um, you know, the game has already got some performance problems and then, you know, here's like rendering is the problem. And so let's do a whole lot more rendering. And so we're like, let's just, let's do a different type of boss. Let's do the sewer hag, which has one sprite as opposed to a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think we could get away with it now. It might be another good update candidate. I should be writing this stuff down um, of things <laughs> that are easy that exist that we could just wire up. Because really, for the spider, what we need to do is just develop some behavior for it. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? We have the animations. We have the graphics. We just need to... We have webs in the game already. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> People have actually asked about that. They have asked, where do the webs come from? And we're like, don't oh, spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask those kinds of questions. <laughs> Invisible spiders? What do you want from me? <laughs> Invisible spiders. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyways, that's about um, 
the list of the changes for a 2.5. Um, it good does update, dude. look like, uh, thanks. Uh, it looks like we are going to be doing a 2.5.1, uh, which is mostly just going to be a bug fix release for some bugs that we've encountered with 2.5. There will be bugs. There will be bugs. There are always freaking bugs. Always, always bugs. It's nobody's fault. I mean, it's always someone's fault, but it's never, <laughs> it's never anyone's fault. They always exist no matter what. Um, some of these are actually my fault. Yeah, like a lot specifically. of them. Most. <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> this is a, it's a problem when you update stuff, right? I, we found an, uh, a bug just, you know, this past weekend where if you try and talk, if you try to interact with the doors, the uh, the shortcuts mm-hmm. in the uh, in the town, the game will just crash because oh. I added these tooltips to locked things. And I thought it was really cool. Like when you go up to a locked chest and try to interact with it, uh, it'll like kind of shake and it'll make a sound, but it'll also pop up like a dialogue that says, you know, hey, this is locked and the keyhole looks like it fits this particular key. Right. I didn't bother testing that on those doors because those doors don't have keys like that. Yeah. And so what it would try to do is it would try to pop up this dialogue and it was like trying to get the, you know, string name for this key that was null. Right. And you know, so it would just crash. Huh. Well, I guess chalk that up to uh, us not testing comprehensively. Uh, it's hard we, though, because I mean like yeah. that's such a, you know, oh, I have to go test these doors that hardly anyone ever uses. It just goes to show that, yeah, it's not a feature that was, you know, <laughs> very well thought out. Uh, I, like, like We both tested the game, but we, I think we did the same thing. We both just went into the dungeon and we played all the levels and we beat it and we were like, yeah, it seems fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like lazy testing. Uh, we tested like the core loop, but we often miss kind of the edge cases. Like, well, what if you yeah. start from the sewer shortcut? Or yeah. what if you, you know, have this other edge case? And so, you know, those things just come up. This is where the, uh, this, you know, the portion of our uh, listeners who like are really into test cases and unit tests are like grumbling right now. Yes. Like, <laughs> why did you guys should test this? See, this is the exact <laughs> <Automated>. reason. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm a bad programmer, but I don't even, I can't even con like think about how to create, you know, <laughs> a comprehensive testing suite for a wizard's lizard. Yeah. I, I mean, it's possible. I remember there was, um, I forget what it was called these days. I remember back at Yahoo, especially there was all these automated things they had where it was like, you know, basically a browser that would do manual tasks. Like it would click on areas and wait for things like, you know, like a window to pop open or whatever. It's yeah. all possible, but like, uh, man, we, like we barely have the time to, you know, complete the game. So it's overwhelming. Yeah. Anywho. Anywho. Oh man. Um, since the Kickstarter launched, like uh, we we never talked about our like our happy numbers and our sad numbers. Um, I don't know. I don't want to dwell on negativity again. But we didn't even reach our, our unhappy number. <laughs> and I think ever since then, I've just been like I've been super stressed and um, just kind of down. You know, like we talked before, like a lot of uh, <laughs> on any given day, uh, I might see some positive or some negative uh, feedback, and it like it kind of sets your mood for the day. And uh, I haven't been drawing as much. I've noticed. I think I need to be in a happy place to be drawing. Um, there have been some days where I'm like, I need to do it because it needs to be done uh, just for practice and for getting some artwork done for the sequel and even for AWL1 and stuff like that. But uh, I have not been in a very artistic mindset uh, these last couple of weeks. So um, what's your art tip then? My art tip is uh, <laughs> <laughs> take a break from art. <laughs> Step away. 
No, not really. Um, so let's see. Last episode, it was drill your fundamentals, I believe, which is good. It's like, just it's good just to know your fundamentals, like perspective and light and shadow and anatomy and composition stuff like that and uh this time it is about toggling so um everything's a balance you know life work that's a balance um game development game design is a balance and uh with art there's lots and lots lots of things to balance but uh two of my favorites there is line and there is mass there's a big difference between the two um you know let's say you the only time you ever do artwork is you're drawing on your sketchbook and you're using a pencil right Mm-hmm. Pretty much 100% of your practice is line, and you're not getting any form and mass practice. So what I would do there is I would go into, like I use Manga Studio these days, and I'll get a big, fat, thick brush, and I'll start practicing with my form. Uh, I actually posted some studies I did from Shining of the Darkness, which were form studies. I did not use any, um, like, you know, under sketch, like a pencil. Uh, like, uh, basically no lines were drawn. It was all, like, thick mass and uh, that's good to know um there's other things like uh value and color hue and saturation uh there's smooth and jagged lines there's straight lines and curved lines uh you should study nature and you should study man-made things uh basically it's like if you're studying one thing go in the opposite direction just for a bit you know like you don't have to be like you know i really want to get good at drawing so i've been using line a lot but Matt said to toggle it, so I'm going to spend the next six months in mass. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It's just like, you know, let's say you practice five days a week. Take one of those days and toggle. You know, do something different. Try, like, if you yin-yang, like that kind of thing, you know? I see. Diversify. Yeah. Diversify, yeah. Like, it, uh, you might, because that's a big thing with art, is a lot of it is finding what works for you, you know? And you might have been drawing for a year in line, and then you try painting with like a thick brush and you're like, whoa, this is what does it for me. You know, this is the thing that I've been looking for and I haven't found yet. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that can transfer over into real life and also game dev as well. You know, like uh, it, it goes along the lines of trying new things. You know, like I've got this uh, really good friend of mine and uh, from back home in Illinois who uh, we all know him well for like eating the same food over and over and over again, you know? And, like, me, I like trying different things. And, like, even if I don't like it, and at least I learned that I don't like it, you know, it might help you appreciate the food that you do like more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like this. I'll go back to my tried and true. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, try something different, diversify, um, study different things. Nice. That's a good tip. Thank you. I like that. Yay. Uh, <laughs> you sound so excited. <sighs> I'm beat down. I feel beat down. That's what it is. Yes. Well, I actually got really beat down in Colorado. Really? Yes. What happened? Well, uh, my brother is part of this LARPing group. Did you go LARPing? I did. What? (laughs) How did you not lead with this? You (laughs) buried the lead. (laughs) That's crazy. What kind kind of LARPing? Uh, Well, he does. It's called AmpsGuard, and it's like a a, a national organization, and they... Yeah, have chapters in various cities or whatever and they all get together on the weekends and they go to like a park and they um you know do whatever it is they do and so it's kind of an interesting experience because there's a a, a wide variety of stuff going on and some of it is what you would think of when you hear the word larping which is like people dressed in medieval garb throwing you know, saying fireball. I guess uh, some <laughs> listeners may have never heard of it. It's live action role playing, right? right? It's like yeah. picture a Dungeons and Dragons game, only instead of sitting around a table with character sheets and dice, you're out in the real world wearing robes and you've got probably fake swords. 
I hope. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And and so uh, one of the things that um, that they do there is they do that kind of like class-based stuff where you're like, I'm playing a druid or I'm playing a wizard or I'm playing a whatever. Yeah. Um, but the other thing they do is just medieval combat, which is you get these like foam weapons that, you know, when I say foam, I don't mean nerf. They've actually got like solid cores. They're just coated yeah. in foam. Right. So if you get hit with it, it still hurts. Yes. I mean, you know, it doesn't do any actual damage. Think um, American Gladiators. Yes, yeah, think American Gladiators. So it's kind of yeah. like that. And, like, there's no spell casting, there's no nothing. It's just physical weapon combat. And so I went out there and I did that with him. And, uh, man, some of those guys are good. <laughs> I bet. So yeah. did you spar with them and you got hit with sticks? Yes, I did. <laughs> and uh, not only that, you know, I haven't been doing awesome. a lot of active stuff. And so I was... You know, just just the act of, like, turning and pivoting and, you know, swinging these weapons just made me sore. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I'd be worried about your... Uh, what did you have? You had, like, a pinched... I had, the, a, yeah, I had a pinched nerve in my back. Pinched nerve. Yeah. Um, I seem to be fine. That's good. So far. But uh, <laughs> it was actually a lot of fun. You know, I... You know, my brother's kind of into the class-based stuff. Um, he's into both aspects of it. Um, I, myself not really interested in like the you know spell casting role-playing part right um, but i found you, the physical stuff yeah i want to hit stuff with sticks <laughs> that was actually a lot of fun and it, it, yeah. it's just kind of you know it's more pure i think uh yeah. because it's like you know just like a physical skill um you know are you good at sword play you know it's, it's like almost like fencing or something right uh anyways that was a lot of fun i didn't do as well as i thought i was gonna do <laughs> do you do you ever no, <laughs> but you know, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not the most athletic person, but I'm not like a huge couch potato. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I've got decent agility and coordination and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're going up against those people that do it every week. Uh, also, the other thing is I was doing it at 7,000 feet. <laughs> and so again, <laughs> like I just, uh, you know, I would, I would have a little skirmish with somebody and then I'd be like, okay, I need, I, I can't breathe. <laughs> no excuse. Do you think the dragons will care that you're high altitude? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) When they rain fire upon your village, you know, stuff like that. Um, There's a couple different games we played that were kind of fun. One was just, you know, it was everyone just kind of sparring with each other. And like, you know, if you get hit, uh, if you get hit in the torso, you're dead. If you get hit in the arm, you can't use that arm anymore and stuff like that. That's fun. Um, And then we also played this game called Warlord, which was if you get killed by somebody, you're their minion. And so then you have to like run around the battlefield with them attacking oh, people. Nice. And then it kind of it kind of clusters up until you have like basically two armies. Uh, and then you know at, at the end of the game, the person that has everybody as their minion is the warlord, and they win. Man, I, I love <clears throat> games that are real simple like that, and like they live in these worlds where you know warlord doesn't need a strange attractor, warlord doesn't need a good marketing spin, you know. Like, it doesn't need to be called anything more different than just Warlord, you know? It's very simple and very pure. I like that. Yeah, it's like the rules are easy, and the win condition is easy, and it's just fun because, you know, hitting people with sticks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The minion aspect sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, the minion aspect is pretty fun, you know, because then... uh, it kind of, you know, it starts off everyone for themselves and then it kind of turns into like this team-based combat thing, but the teams are like always shifting. 
Right. Uh, because if someone kills one of your minions, then that minion is now theirs. Interesting. You know, so it's kind of like this this kind of back and forth ebb and flow of, you know, individual warlords. And if, if someone kills a warlord, all of their minions get set free. And so oh. the game can kind of like, you know, toggle back and forth between, you know, it, it could even be like, oh, there's two groups. There's two warlords that each have, you know, some number of minions. And then one of the warlords gets killed and then all his minions are free again. And so then it's kind of like a big chaotic mess <laughs> again. Nice. So interesting stuff. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, there's all di- like there was people with all different kinds of stuff. There was like, you know, people had swords, long swords, great swords. People had throwing axes. There were people with uh, bows and arrows, um, people with pole arms, people with flails, shields. Wow. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. How many people were there? There. Oh, God. Uh, a lot. Like, I would say 40 to 50. Wow. Yeah. That is a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. Very cool. Yeah. Anyways, uh, that's a great segue into my game development tip. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Uh, this is actually, uh, it's just a general game dev tip, which again, you know, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm trending towards because, uh, you know, I don't find unity specific stuff you know all that interesting on a general perspective yeah and like a lot of our listeners that they're html5 developers or they're working in c++ or like you know many of them are interested in unity too but the less unity specific it is probably uh the more appealing it'll be in general right right so this is kind of a tried and true tip that has served me well pretty much my whole programming career and it's really not even specific to game dev but it happens a lot in game dev is Mm. Uh, prefer composition over inheritance. Ooh. Yes. Sounds fancy. It does. <laughs> and it's kind of just like a tenet of uh, object-oriented programming. And a lot of languages, like especially classical languages, uh, class-based inheritance, they kind of funnel you down this road of like uh, creating a really deep uh, inheritance model um, for example, like, okay, let's start with uh, a mammal. And then a dog inherits from the mammal class. Right. And so the dog can do everything that the mammal can do. Uh, and then you have, like, um, a German shepherd. And the German shepherd inherits from the dog, which inherits from the mammal, which, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Um, that's actually a really brittle model. Yeah. It's kind of limiting. It is very limiting because you kind of have all these edge cases where... Uh, things don't, you know, necessarily line up the way you want. Um, there might be features of certain things that you uh, don't want to have or want to have or that don't make sense in one instance or another. And I, I think that, like, the animal um, metaphor is actually pretty... Uh, it's, it's a pretty bad metaphor because it kind of tricks you into thinking that, like, Oh, well, it kind of mimics nature, right? Like, nature has this, like, classical hierarchy. Like, you know, uh, a tabby is a cat, a cat is a feline, and they all kind of share these specific traits, but they don't, you know, uh, at the root, they all share these things kind of fundamentally. Yeah, it's very understandable, and it's easy to explain to people, and so when you're learning about programming, which is this, you know, very deep ocean, and sometimes you're desperate just to latch onto anything to help you comprehend it, 
uh, it's it's really attractive to use and to latch onto. And like we did early on, you know, like we've used a lot of classical inheritance and even in JavaScript where you can kind of like hack it into the language sort of. It's a very attractive way to go. But then you put yourself in these scenarios where you'll have like, you know, I have a car that wants to bark. And so I've got this car that wants to use code from mammal pool, which it doesn't work that way, you know, like, so the shared code is, is not as like shared, not, not as easily shareable as it could be. Right. Yeah. And because in a game you have all kinds of stuff that's like just completely different, you know, even yeah. though it seems like it could be, it's just, it's all fakery. Right. Uh, and you have fantastical stuff too. Like, you know, you have a treasure chest that moves and attacks you and it's a mimic. Right. And so, you know, it's tempting to like inherit from something that's alive or whatever. Right. Uh, but you also want to inherit from treasure chest and then those things t- tend to kind of conflict. The point of that uh, composition over inheritance is that uh, instead of just inheriting, you know, down this crazy chain, you basically um, compose your objects of behaviors. And that actually kind of ties right into the entity component system, right? The whole idea of entity component is that you have these entities that all exist on kind of this like same plane, uh, and then you just attach behaviors to them. You compose. Uh, they're composed of things, right? Yeah. And so they might be composed of um, the barking component or the moving component or the colliding with stuff component or the whatever. And uh, and that really helps kind of keep your design, like, one, extensible and two, uh, not as spaghetti (laughs) and and avoids a lot of those conflicts like oh i want a thing that does this thing but not this other thing and i have to inherit from this base class that does everything in the world right uh and so you know classical inheritance has its place obviously Uh, and people that know unity will actually kind of say like well hey wait a minute aren't the unity components themselves classical and they are uh all entity all Unity components uh, inherit from a class called mono behavior, and uh, but I, it's not really the same, right? It's not like the components themselves are classical inheritance, but it's a very shallow. You know, you don't have a lot of like deep. Oh, this component inherits from this, which inherits from that, which inherits from that, and so you kind of don't get into those like really crazy hierarchical situations. Yeah, um, and then. But you're also still talking about each individual component or each game object or entity being composed of multiple components. Right. And those components themselves happen to be classes. Nice. Anyways. Yeah. Hopefully that... I I totally agree with that. And uh, yeah, the more you program, I think that like, you know, classical inheritance is uh, is very tempting to use in some regards. But uh, yeah, I think especially with JavaScript, we're more like piecemeal. Like this code lives in a place and you can use it anywhere. And, like, JavaScript's actually really good about that, especially because you can call code in kind of any context you want, you know, as long as you have access to a function, you can attach it uh, to just about anything you want. Yeah, that's one of the... One of my favorite things about JavaScript is just this model where you can call any function and you can execute it in the context of any object. Yeah. I find that to be so powerful and elegant. Uh, It's one of my favorite things about the language. Yeah, it's very portable in that regard. You could just have like this uh, this file where you have a bunch of functions and you're like, here's all of my functionality right here and I just call these functions from wherever I want on you know, on whatever entity I want, on whatever component, on whatever game object, like it doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, the downside to that whole scenario is that you have to have pretty intimate knowledge of how 
scoping works in JavaScript and the this keyword yeah. and all that stuff. But I don't think that's that complicated. I think that it's very confusing when you're first learning it and you're like the, the keyword this a lot of times you're like, for one, you're like, what? Like that's kind of confusing. But then also this can mean very different things in different contexts. But once you kind of get over the kind of muddiness of JavaScript in that regard, I think it's a very solvable problem and it's, it makes your code extremely portable. Yep. I agree. Good stuff. Good tip composition over inheritance i like it yeah and that's again something it's not just entity component it's really anything you know uh you could have a game engine right and your game engine can have systems in it and those systems should be components not inheritance yeah um and even not in game dev you know if you're writing anything just make stuff a uh, a composition rather than an inheritance tree and you'll be probably better off in almost all cases I think that's uh, all we've got for this week. So thanks for listening. Sorry we missed last week, um, but feel free to stop by our forum and let us know what you think of the cast at forum.losticketgames.com. And, you know, as always, if you can help us out, spread the word about the Kickstarter at Wizards Lizard 2. We very much appreciate it. If you listen to the podcast soon, be sure to wish Jeff a happy birthday. That's tomorrow, right? Nope. What? Really? <laughs> We're a horrible friend. No, no, no it is. Oh, I, it is. I just don't want to be any older. <laughs> I'm gonna I be. I'm gonna be 35, Matt. Right, so you're gonna run for president, right? Yeah, because yeah, now I can, right? Yes, so. that is that is the. Uh, wait, were you born? Were you born in America? Yes. Let's see that birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, American comedy, everybody. We're gonna play you out with. Uh, City Lights by Joshua Morse. Ship it.
Nope.